Hey guys, welcome to this edition of Free Thinking with Montone. It's so good to have you here and so good to be able to share with you. And I'm so happy to have our guest on that we have on the day. And why? Because, you know, recently we've been looking at just a world in crisis. It's like, you know, everything seems to be coming together at the same time. We're getting out of COVID, but then again, we're not getting out of COVID because now there's a new variant that everybody's got everybody anxious and worried about whether or not COVID could bounce up and bang up again. And then we're sitting here worried about whether or not we are really sitting on the cusp of World War III. So much anxiety, so much stress. You know, we uh, recently read a report that somewhere between, you know, 30 and 60 percent of those people who spent more than three days in the hospital because of COVID are now suffering from some form of PTSD. And most of our first responders and doctors who have lived through, you know, this last two years of treating people with COVID and losing so many people are suffering from some form of PTSD and, and stress and anxiety. And, you know, I don't know if we're spending as much time thinking about, you know, the mental health of America. And we should be. And that should be as, you know, uh, turn on the news and you know, I get this all-day barrage of rockets, red glare, and bombs, and bodies on the ground. And, you know, it's almost like, you know, our news media is so obsessed with making sure that they lead with the blood rather than lead with the story. Um, and I don't know if we're thinking about what this is doing to the psyche of us as a people, not uh, or as a race, I mean, as, as a species. And it's good to talk to people who you know, have their pulse on what's going on when it comes to our mental health. And our guest today is is an authority and experiencing a traumatic event can have tremendous impact on a person's life. The symptoms of PTSD can make a person feel constantly afraid and isolated. In addition, depression is common, is common following a traumatic event and among people with PTSD, which often leads to substance abuse and in some cases, suicide. According to the National Institute of Health, suicide is among one of the leading causes of death in the United States. It's important to realize that even though it may feel as though there is no hope, recovery and healing is possible. My guest today earned his doctorate in psychology at Florida State University. He went on to compete to complete his residency at the Warren Alpert School of Medicine at Brown University, and earned his MBA degree from Texas A&M. He served in addition to being as, as, a, as a field clinician and in leadership roles since 2011. He places emphasis on improving access to behavioral health services, community outreach, and integrating resources in order to provide the best outcome for each and every single individual. Dr. Ted Bender, thank you so much for joining us today on Free Thinking with Montel. It's an honor to be here, Montel. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, sir. Thank you for being here. I mean, I, I, I just want to get your take for a second on, because I think you mentalize, you, I mean, sorry, you specialize in mental health and, and substance abuse and, you know, substance abuse as well as suicide prevention, things that are brought on by anxiety and stress and PTSD. What do you think about the climate of us as a nation right now? I mean, you know, we're, we're, yeah, we're coming out of a pandemic where people were so hyper 
sensitive and hyper anxious. And now we're being force fed every single day information about something that could or could not be, might turn into, might not turn into third world war. Come on. I mean, you know, we've got everybody in this country sitting like on a powder keg. Don't you think? I'm feeling it every day personally. Um, and you're absolutely right. You know, I was working in the hospital system when COVID started. So I literally started this job on January 1st and then March happened 2020. And I was in the hospital system with COVID. And I can tell you that our initial response was as good as it could get hospital wide. But what we quickly realized when I was running the mental health division of that hospital system is that we had to turn our resources inward towards our own people because of the amount of trauma and exposure to trauma that they were facing. And now and fast forward years later. No, I'm sorry, because you're not yeah. only the trauma that they were facing, but the long, I mean, just the long hours. Yes. I was, I, I, I still today feel, you know, a little disappointed in my industry, in this industry of the media, because, you know, we focus so much on the trauma and the event, but didn't spend as much time talking about what it was doing to those who were trying to heal us all. I, I mean, I, I heard something about a month ago, uh, somebody was telling me about a doctor who was personally threatened in the hospital because one patient said, well, I want this stuff that the president got. Well, mm -hmm. I don't have that. Well, I'm going to make sure my, my, my boys show up here when you leave. I'm like, have we gotten to this point where we're going to start threatening those who care for us? You know, doctors and nurses and medical techs in hospitals already face a lot of that way before COVID even began. They are harassed and spoken to horribly. And since this began and all the hospitalizations and the COVID nightmare began, it just got worse and worse. That adds to the trauma and the victimization. But, the, you know, where it really comes into play is, and what the nurses told me during that time was, you have a patient who's in the hospital, has severe COVID has to go on a vent, may not make it off the vent, and their family can't be there. And the nurse is the one with an iPad or whatever on a Zoom call with the patient saying goodbye to their family in case they can't make it off the vent. Do that once and imagine what that must be like. Now do that thousands of times and it's just, it's unbearable. But, but, but the way you even explain it, I mean, I think most people don't even understand that even if they try not to have a relationship, Let's say that you go, you, you're, you're a nurse or you're a doctor, and you go in and say, I'm not going to let this yeah. get inside of me. I'm going to be and do my job professionally. But any person who's a nurse or a doctor has this part of their, their sense of being that's compassion, or they would have never gotten into the field. You're right. And so they walk in the rooms, and they, it's, they, they can't but have a personal relationship with that person who is ventilated, that they're handing that iPad to to say goodbye to their loved ones to for the first time. It's almost like they're saying goodbye. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't think we, we give you guys, I'm sorry, but I don't think we give you enough respect because, you know, um, uh, it, it, two straight years of this? Yeah. And here we go. Like you said, again, there's another possible variant. At this point, everyone's got caution fatigue. No one, that no one's going to care if there's another variant coming. We're not going to go back to closing businesses. The mask mandates aren't going to come back in full force because everyone is just sick of being cautious at this point, whether COVID gets worse or not. Right. And, and that, that also, I, we could talk about this for hours because I just think this is absolutely, 
ridiculous that we are so pompous as human beings that we believe that we can kick nature's ass and we can't. I mean, let's get a grip here and understand that, you know, if we knew everything, nobody would be sick. So we don't know everything. But then number two, you know, we approach this as if we are truly the kings or the, you know, the the pinnacle of this ground thing that we live on, but don't even recognize that this big round thing that we live on is a living, breathing entity moving at a couple hundred thousand miles an hour through a a space and time. We don't even stop for a second to to fathom what we really are. We're nothing more than this infinitesimal little piece of dust that is as insignificant as any other. I I, I just, I, I don't think our significance is as great as we believe it is. And therefore we think that we lord over things like virus. We lord over things like bacteria, but Better start to recognize that that was around a couple million years before we even got here. It's going to be around for a couple million years after we go. Yeah, and you hit on a good point. That existential crisis that you're talking about may be part of what's kind of leading to this um, surge of anxiety and depression. You know, like you said, we could talk about these these aspects you know all day long, but we're seeing significant increases in anxiety disorders, significant increases in depression, significant increases in suicide that started long before. COVID even came onto the scene. And now we're, we're seeing all these newly diagnosed people who didn't have these kind of problems. And we're, we're certainly seeing it in my industry. And I'll tell you where I really get concerned and the majority of the concern for me is our youth and our children. I have two little kids. Uh, they barely know school without masks until literally last Friday when they lifted the mandate here in California. My son has braces and he's getting bullied now for having braces when no one knew he had them before because of the mask. I mean, there's so many different complications and nuances that we don't even have a a grasp on yet. And I don't think we're even paying attention to over time how this is going to affect this next generation. I mean, you nailed it. This is a generation that has grown up and didn't know. Those kids that went to first grade two and a half years ago had never been inside a school without a mask on their face. That's right. But they've also never been inside a school without going... I'm worried about something. I don't know what it is. Everybody's worried about something. Everybody's worried about something. Walking around with that hyper sense of anxiety just because the adults are talking. Um, And I don't know if we are paying close enough attention to this. I'm going to slow it down a little bit. I I, I was so excited to talk to you that I just jumped right in. But let's back up a little bit and talk about you, sir. I mean, you know, I I applaud you that you decided to become a doctor. But but what what even brought you into the field? I mean, what, tell me a little bit about your background. Where are you from? Sure. Well, um, you know, that's a that's a question I have a hard time answering. I've lived in ten different states at this point, but I spent the the place I lived the most was Tallahassee, Florida, where I went to graduate school and got my PhD. Uh, and when I was an undergrad there, I just became really fascinated with the human brain and how the human mind works, which has kind of got me into the field of psychology. I was always one of those people that wanted to focus his career on helping others. My parents will tell you, I, I started saying that when I was 12 years old, uh, and that stuck with me. I spent a lot of time teaching nursing students, too, at the undergrad level. And that's one thing we always bonded with. You know, they, they like you said, they're helpers. You know, they sacrifice themselves for others. I've always felt that. Um, My career path led into substance use disorders um, with an affinity for helping um, veterans with substance use disorders when I was actually at Brown doing my residency. 
I was working with a lot of guys coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, severe PTSD, but almost every one of them also had a severe substance use disorder. So I was and that, was, that was brought on by their injury because of their uses of being treated. And, right. So in some cases, yeah, um, they had injuries. They had war injuries. I, I had a patient who was injured in basic training, never had a substance use problem before, got addicted to opiates. Many paths lead to Rome, as they say. And um, almost all of them were dealing with these two comorbid conditions. So I'm, I'm treating the PTSD. And then I'm starting to realize that the most deadly thing that they're dealing with at the time was the substance use disorder, because that's going to kill them a lot faster. So I had to kind of flip gears and then treat the substance use disorder primary while also treating the post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's kind of what led me into the substance use field. And, you know, I mean, you know, now we've also got not only substance abuse and its link. Let's talk a little bit about the links between substance abuse and suicide itself. Yes. Yeah, it's it's the suicide death rates in the United States have been rising steadily for since 1999. In fact, since 1999, they've increased by 30 percent to a point now where we're losing 14 out of every 100,000 people in the United States. To is there is there a specific age group or we're talking about it? This really crosses every age group, right? Yeah, the youth youth suicides are up. Even children, child age suicides are up. The, the highest risk factor, risk category has generally been older white males, uh, ages 54 and older for a few varieties of, of variables and reasons. Um, that's been the most at risk. And males are always more at risk of dying by suicide than females due to the lethality of means. And, by the, and also, I guess males, uh, their their um, choice of how they commit suicide yeah. is often way more deadly than others, right? It's usually handguns, exactly. Whereas females are more likely to attempt by cutting or uh, overdosing on pills, which has a lower mortality rate, generally speaking. Got it. And and we're seeing a rise in female suicide, are we not? Yeah. You know, um, in the, when I was in grad school, um, 2005 to 2012, uh, roughly, there was about um, females attempted five times more than males, but males were five times more likely to die by suicide. Now that number is a little bit closer to 3.7. So for every uh, completed suicide by a male, there are for every every 3.5 attempts, there's uh, to one ratio with males at this point. So basically, it's it's the gap is closing, is what we're saying. The, the female suicides uh, are getting more lethal, uh, and they're dying by suicide more than they were in the past. And I know that there's not one reason, but I mean, if you had to to look at, it, is it is it the way our society is? evolved is it the sense of, of of hopelessness in our society is what i mean what, what do you think is is really causing this yeah th there's a lot of different variables to answer that question and i don't think we've nailed it exactly yet but um you know let's look at youth suicide for a moment why is youth suicide increasing one it of doesn't the make sense, doesn't make any sense to me so yeah why, why yeah. is it one of the potential answers and this needs to be continued to be thoroughly flushed out in the research one big difference is social media, right? If you look at the biggest difference, when, when I was a kid growing up, I mean, we had Ataris, we had house phones, right? Nintendos. We didn't have any social media. We didn't carry around these supercomputers in our pockets. We played outside most of the time and played sports, right? Now, it, and then, you know, if you got bullied at school, it's it was a, a tragic event. You get bullied. If you got picked on constantly, that could be a big problem. But well, it was you, got, you got bullied and 95% and of the, the school didn't know you were being bullied. That's right. 
Now wow. the whole school knows it because they can look at the bully's interpretation, your interpretation, and everybody outside of you interpreting you being bullied, right? Exactly. With 260 characters on a tweet or an image or an unflattering picture, well, like you said, it, it's become much more widespread and it's 24-7 now, right? If you got bullied in third period in middle school, it was over and done with a fight in the schoolyard or whatever used to happen. Now it's, it's around the clock, 24-7, 24-7, posts are going out, social media. That's a potential variable that we think could be contributing to the rise in suicide in youth. And, and, you know, and I, I'm, I'm glad you, you stay cautious and don't say anything that, that you think might be misinterpreted because, but I am one that I'm going to say, I got to tell you, I think that this has a large, a, a, a big, plays a big role in this. And I'm just afraid of what's about to come down the pike when we're talking about this new metaverse thing. Come on now. I mean, I am I, blown away at the fact that people, let me get this straight. I'm going to spend my day sitting in front of this thing here, acting like that little fake thing inside of there is me because I live in that fake place and the fake things that happen to that fake thing affect I don't get it. I, I think it's because I'm too old. I must be. <laughs> yeah, Montel, I, I, I just, I feel myself wishing that my kids could have had the kind of childhood that I did. Uh, I had a good childhood growing up. I spent all my time outside in Ohio and Michigan, playing in the woods, playing basketball with my friends. My kids don't do that, you know, nearly as much as I did. And yeah, and the metaverse and we're going to be living inside of a headset. I mean, it, it's, it blows my mind. I, I, and I, I got to tell you, well, that that one right there, let's just stop and think about that for a second. If you wanted to give some advice to like a parent right now, I mean, would you tell your parent, uh, tell a parent, look, you know, this technology, just because I, I, I often have said this, just because they make it don't mean you got to buy it. Yeah. Period. And, yeah. But, but OK, so the truth is, so your kid's going to beat you over the head for Christmas. You got to go get them one, get them yeah. one. But. Can't we tell parents that there's nothing wrong with you saying I'm limiting the amount of time you get to use this today? I'll lock this damn thing up if you use it more than three or 20 minutes a day. But even Apple, even Apple knows that, right? They, they added the screen time feature to their software for this exact reason. Steve Jobs was famous for not allowing his own kids to have an iPad. So I, I think, look, it's, it's each parent's individual choice on how much screen time their kids get. But if you're at a point where you're not monitoring it at all and they're just on it all day long, that yeah, that's something to be concerned about. You know, everything in moderation. Uh, you know, I, 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 I'm, I was shocked. Uh, you know, I have not gotten out that much in the last couple of years. I mean, I and my wife, we, we were very avid diners. We used to love going to restaurants, you know, but then COVID hit and of course we stopped and, now it's just it, I I am taken aback by this attitude. Hoo hoo! I'm free. I get to do whatever I want to do. And the behavior of people right now is is worse to me than COVID. I mean, I go in a restaurant and I hear somebody speak to a, a waiter or a waitress. I feel like throwing my fork at them, <laughs> and like, or or the rudeness in which people want to push by you in line, or they want to, you know, it's just it's, there's there's this there's this weird rudeness going on. Um, you know, you, you see that thing about you know uh, why is man stop being so kind to man? You know, we call it mankind, but now there's no kindness in man, yeah. but there is, and very little of it, but. 
you know, in social settings now, it's almost like since we took a two-year break, now all of a sudden nobody, there's a breakdown in socialism, in socializing? You know, one of the things that come along with increased levels of anxiety and depression as a nation and as a whole is also irritation. You know, you're seeing that in the situations that you just mentioned. I've seen very similar issues. We have a rise in attack on, on Asian people in this country. We also ha- we are seeing it on airplanes all the time where passengers are acting horribly towards the, the staff. And I do think there's a relationship there. I mean, when you have increased aggravation, increased anxiety, increased depression, we're going to see worsening of behavior. And it's not always possible to hold it in and just keep it to the home the home environment. It's, it's leaking out into society, as you suggested. It, it seems like it's becoming like almost social sport. I mean, I'm down here in Miami right now, and, you know, this is spring break, and I'm telling you, you know, they had to, they're enforcing a curfew down here because these people are acting a fool. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean I, I've seen foolish behavior before, but this is like almost foolish behavior on steroids. Yeah. Um, and this is all when we look at that, the reflection of that on our youth. I want to go back and just make a little comment about when we were talking about screen time. That I, I was a, I think I, I was walking through the grocery store, and I, I remember I walked by this lady, and I'm, she had a baby couldn't have been three years old. Uh, baby, I'm thinking a baby was two, around two years old, holding a the mother's iPhone, and had right when I was walking by, I think I was, before I got up to where the the little cart was, baby dropped that iPhone on the floor. And the mother was, I, I, I was thinking, is stupid enough to have the baby be too close to the racks of food. This baby went, I have never seen a baby go off like this for dropping a daggone phone. And because she wasn't able to play her game. I mean, literally knocked, the, it was near the spice rack. One swinging arm knocked 30 things down on the ground, started screaming, howling at the mother. And the mother came over, she started hitting the mother. The mother picked the thing up on the floor, gave her the little, Phone back and baby shut up. I was like, "What? <laughs> Are you kidding me? That kid would never get another phone for the rest of the life of my kids." Yeah. However, you know, mother gave her the phone. Why? Because I think we now, because of the stress of the mother, yeah, that's an easier babysitter for her. It is. It's become. It's becoming one of the best babysitters in restaurants, especially. You know, I think when this all shakes out, screen time and screen addiction is going to be one of the strongest addictions known to man and combating it and fighting it is going to be extremely challenging challenge anyone you know to go on their screen time on their iphone and see what their average screen time per day is the majority of people are going to be at the four to five hour mark and that's just oh, not, that's going to get worse well mine is i i i'm i'm been pretty happy i know though i've got to admit i have been an avid live poker player yeah, I've done this. I like that game, so I play yeah. poker. But I mean, there are times when I have noticed. I, I started noticing myself when I, I started looking at my my screen time and realizing my screen time was because of my poker play. And I was like, "Dude, you got to calm down." I mean, I was playing a little bit too much poker during the day, and so you know, I, I limit it now to late, late in the evening, and I normally play like one game and I stop. Right. Um, but uh, you know, but we're we're the technology is is running at leaps and bounds so fast. I mean, I, I, I again, I, this whole idea of me trying to live this virtual me, I, I just don't get it. 
you know, you know, and so you know, they use psychology in their in app development. You know how it is when you have a, a notification or you hear your phone across the room make that that characteristic ding mark, or you see that little red one on one of your apps. Good luck not checking it. Just right. try. Sit there in your discomfort, and then you'll see the and begin to understand the problem that we're going to be facing right, already. Right. Well, you know, let, let's get back to, you know, I'm sorry, I keep going, diverting off to the left or the right, but you worked quite a bit on a military project for the DOD, DOD identifying suicide risk for military members. I work quite a bit with, you know, the the uh, our veterans. Um, I'm involved in the Fisher House. I'm involved in a show that I do that's called Military Makeover, yeah. where we literally take deserving veterans and we make their homes over from the ground up and give them a forever home, you know, just as a way not to say, not to just pay lip service to thank you for your service, but actually do something about it. Um, but but tell me a little bit about what you were able to find in, in identifying those risk factors for our military members for suicide. Yeah. When I got involved in the early phases of, of that program, the Military Suicide Research Consortium, it was at a time where, you know, the military wasn't well known for letting people into just to study mental health in the armed forces. Um, as you're well aware, um, with your time in the service, it was a kind of a don't talk about it, hidden thing or sign of weakness. You certainly didn't want that in your file, having any kind of mental health issues, right? right. But it got to a point back, you know, in the early 2010s or in the early 2000s, where we were losing a veteran a day to suicide. Active duty veterans were dying by suicide, not only um, in theater, but right when they were getting home or even before they went to war. And the, the military decided that they needed to understand what was going on because now it's, you know, it's, it's looks fairly bad. You know, their soldiers are killing themselves, but it's also a matter of warrior resiliency where, you know, they had to preserve an asset and, and sorry to make that sound so inhumane, but that's kind of, that's the truth of it. It's not just about um, suicidality, but it's pre preserving the warrior. Um, so they started to open up the um, research game and also a lot of money and research dollars to go with it. So we were successful in creating this consortium, which ended up being over $70 million and still going. Uh, and then there's been dozens and dozens of studies since then. I think one of the more interesting things that we learned early on, um, and this has changed since I've left it, was that asking soldiers about suicidality, especially coming back from theater, wasn't the best way to get at it because as you can relate to, if you're coming back from Iraq or Afghanistan or one of these engagements, and I say to you, you know, Montel, are you having any thoughts of suicide? You're not going to say yes. No, 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 no. You got to say that first. No, 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 yeah. no, no. Right. Right. You want to go home and see your family. You don't want to be right. triaged into a mental health facility, which could happen. So we had to, we had to start by kind of trying to figure out how do we assess for suicide and suicidality without directly asking about it. So that's some of the research I got involved with. And one of the variables that we found was um, sleep. Sleep is something that you could feel comfortable talking about, and specifically nightmares and recurring nightmares. And those were two key variables that we found to be highly related to potential suicidality um, and could be, give us a, uh, an indicator of a risk factor. You know, I think I mentioned this to you when we spoke before on your podcast. I was talking about the fact that I'm involved in a project now for years, almost 12 years. <clears throat> That's called, um, <coughs> excuse me, RTM, Reconsolidation of Traumatic Memories, which has been now listed by the ISTSS as being one of only two, what they call known cures for PTSD because it's got a 90% efficaciousness rate. And I'll let you know that 
about two weeks ago, uh, the Ukrainian government reached out to R&R, which is their nonprofit arm, and asked them to please come over and train some clinicians in Poland who are wow. Ukrainian to now help start counseling veterans and some of the civilian population because, and they started last week, they've already put, they're putting 46 three people through right now. They got another 150 on a waiting list that they're going to start training within the next couple of months. They should complete all the training and certify the clinicians that they're working with in the next two to three weeks. Um, this RTM protocol, I don't know if our office did send it to you, but you know, it, it literally remits most of the symptoms of PTSD in five to 10 hours without any medication. It's pretty yeah. phenomenal. Um, I've been very, very impressed with them and I'm working right now to see if we can get as much information you know, spread across the country and around the world about this. And I think, you know, it's recognition now in the Ukraine is going to probably help it do that. That's really good to hear. Um, we need we need better treatments for treating post-traumatic stress disorder, treating veterans and people who suffer from severe traumas. Uh, and, you know, the frontline treatments that we have now are typically cognitive processing therapy and exposure-based traumas. And they do work mm -hmm. and they are very effective. But you hit it on the head. You know, it takes a lot longer than five to ten hours for those type yeah. of treatments. And I think exposure therapy, you know, one of the things about that, not that I knock it because it does work for some, about 37%. Right. Exposure therapy does force the individual to live, relive that trauma. Yes. And sometimes that that's not necessarily one size doesn't fit all. That's not necessarily the best thing for everybody who's suffered a trauma, especially some of the civilian trauma that, you know, from rape or to childhood sexual abuse or to accidents and things like that. That's been a little bit tough now. You know, but I think that it does work for some. What other? What are some of the other treatment protocols that you've found that might have been might be really effective for PTSD? Yeah, you know, the ones that I used with with active soldiers and also female sexual trauma victims primarily was the cognitive processing and um, exposure based traumas as a as the frontline treatments for th that type of disorder. You know doesn't work for everybody, like you said, but there is no one mental health treatment that works for everybody. You know, like take depression, for example, frontline treatment for major depression is cognitive behavioral therapy, but that doesn't always work for everybody. We do have other treatments that you'd switch to and, and try. Uh, and then, you know, the, the end, or if, if, if you're completely treatment resistant to depression, there are things like uh, electroconvulsive therapy, which is used only in you know last instances, and now some things that are coming onto the market, uh, ketamine infusion has been shown to work well for treatment-resistant depression. I was going to ask you about that because I'm I'm working with a, f a friend out of California who has been licensed to open up a few ketamine treatment centers themselves, and there's an organization that they're working with that is working deeply not only just with ketamine but also with other psych psychedelics. And also cannabis. I mean, what do you think about those new fringe modalities? You know, you have to remain open-minded to any new type of treatments. Because if psychology and psychiatry had all the answers, then we wouldn't be seeing all these rises in, all, in everything. we got to get better. We have to discover new treatments. The one caution I would give is for, for ketamine, for example, the research is pretty strong from what I've seen. There's strong research to show for treatment-resistant depression, it can be very effective. When it comes to the other psychedelics, the initial studies are very promising, uh, and I'm, I'm keeping a very close eye on these studies. But again, the, the, the sample sizes are pretty thin still, meaning that we don't have enough sample size or large enough sample sizes to generalize this 
just yet. So I know people are getting very excited about it and rightfully so, because we need something, we need something better. We need better treatments, but I still caution everybody to be, to be uh, careful to interpret small sample sizes to large scale general generalizability. But there are very prominent research groups out there doing this work. It's not, you know, Cracker Jack research teams doing this. Harvard, Yale, very prominent researchers are out there doing this work. And very I yeah. think you're absolutely right. Yeah, I, I, I see some, some, you know, efficaciousness in it. And, and I'm excited a little bit about it because I think one of the things that when it comes to understanding some of the psych psychedelic research that's going on and even the ketamine research, you're starting to find out that, you know, initially they thought, well, dose size might have been X, but now they are bringing that dosage size down ever so small to micro dosing and yeah. getting some fairly significant results out of that. Yes. Yeah. That's why it's exciting because, you know, the, the initial studies, the initial trials, the more the acceptability of doing this kind of work these days versus when it got shut down back in the 60s uh, is exciting. And we have to remain open minded. We need every tool we can get in the toolbox to fight this. I mean, I feel in my profession, I'm constantly on an uphill battle. You know, the addiction rates continue to get worse. Suicide rates continue to get worse. Trauma continues to get worse. You mentioned what we're dealing with here in the United States. Look, what the poor folks of Ukraine. You know, what are we going to see for that kind of fallout? I mean, it's 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 endless, it feels like. Sometimes. Generations to come. And I mean, I, I can't imagine the anxiety level, not just in Ukraine, but let's look at, um, you know, Moldova, uh, Lithuania, you know, Latvia, all the way around that ring of countries that, you know, are close to Russia right now. They're probably all, you know, shaking in their boots, wondering, are we going to be next? And so, you know, we have now, it's four weeks in, and... We are here protected by an ocean. Yeah. But, you know, we're not protecting ourselves from our own media, which seems to be trying its best. Again, like I say, you know, there used to be a saying in the media when I first entered about 20 years ago that was like, if it leads, if it bleeds, it leads. That seems to be what we're trying to do every single day, making sure that we can show you the bloodiest story that we can and not recognizing that the, who the people are that are sitting in the living rooms around America who are watching this garbage. It's it's whoever's first, not necessarily what is true these days, unfortunately. Right. right. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about, about what some some of the myths around suicide. Yeah. You know, because most of the time, you know, that people and it still is something, of course, that is looked down upon. It's religiously looked down upon, but people people look down upon the person who may have attempted it and didn't succeed. Yeah which may be part of the reason why the person tries it again. Yep. There's some, there's some real common myths uh, that people really believe. And I'm glad you asked that because every chance I get to correct the public on this, I, I, I take advantage of it. And at the Be Well Network as well, when we're talking to families, we have to do a lot of this kind of work too. I yeah, think so. the Be Well Network again, go ahead and throw that out because if people want to get some information about that, where do they go? Yeah, um, a Be Well Network is a, a, a string of treatment and mental health and substance use disorder treatment facilities in Southern California. And you can learn about more about us at BeWellRecovery.com. Uh, also, the number is 888-317-8395, and you can call us 24-7. But, you know, one of, the, one of the most common myths about suicide, Montel, is that it's impulsive. This could not be further from the truth. So people are just, people tend to think that I'm going about my life. I'm not suicidal. I'm not having thoughts of suicide. And then boom, one day I just decide it and do it. 
that is a really common myth, especially among decedents or people that are left behind, family members, friends. Um, generally speaking, when someone dies by suicide, they have been planning for it oftentimes for a, quite a while. Uh, they've been planning for it. They've been gathering material for it. They become more comfortable with the thought of suicide. And it's not an impulsive decision. That's that's one of the bigger myths out there. Wow. How about any others? Yeah. Um, they always leave a note. Actually, in most cases, they don't. Um, it's the easy way out. You probably heard that people say that before. You know, there's nothing easy about overcoming the most fundamental drive of life on this planet, which is survival. Overcoming one's own survival mechanism is extremely difficult. Um, so there's nothing easy about it. And it goes back into the, you know, the planning and becoming more comfortable with it over time. Uh, nothing easy. And there are probably signs that, again, those who say, well, I never knew this was the, they were thinking yeah. that way. When you stop them and make them think, then they start coming up with the signs that they think they missed. Yes. Here, here's the here's the keys to remember when it comes to that, when when they're with signs and symptoms. First of all, when you become suicidal or having th strong thoughts about attempting or making a suicide attempt, you have convinced yourself that everybody in your life will be better off if you're gone. You have to convince yourself of that. Otherwise, it's too painful to think about how hurt the people will be in your life if you die by suicide. The other component to that is uh, a lack of belongingness, feeling as if you don't fit in anywhere. It's called thwarted belongingness. You have those two pieces which make up the desire for suicide. But even in and of itself, that's not enough. You also must have the ability to make an attempt. And that's where, for lack of a better word, practice kind of comes to place. Practice in your own head with the idea of dying by suicide, gathering materials, figuring out how you're going to do it, which leads to potential observable symptoms, like you mentioned. If you have a loved one or a family member or a friend who's often talking about death or dying, or starts giving away all of their belongings, or starts writing notes that they leave around or they're found that look like suicide notes or talking about death or dying a lot. Those are very clear indicators that there may be a problem and you should seek help right away. Absolutely. And, you know, now, again, I, I think I asked this question earlier, but is there an age group that we really need to right now start looking a little bit more at? Is it the elderly right now? Because they see no reason to still be here, or is it the youth of uh, that we need to be looking at a little bit closer, or or it's really not that simple? I think both. You know, uh, white Caucasian males over the age of fifty four is your most at risk group, hands down. Um, but like you just hit on, you know, the fifteen to twenty four year olds, that's kind of been hovering as the second or third leading cause of death for that age group now. Um, in you know, in the two thousand twenties is suicide. So it's actually one of the highest death, uh, uh, the highest uh, methods of death for 15 to 24 year olds. Wow. Yeah. And now also explain to me and tell me a little bit about there is a difference between an overdose death yes. and a suicide. Not all overdoses are because someone attempted to commit suicide. Overdoses could be, could be that practice or could be just not paying attention, right? Yes. You know, and sometimes they're hard to piece apart. Sometimes you don't know if it's an over accidental overdose death or a suicide attempt. The numbers can get a little muddled there. But these days, um, when it comes to intravenous drug use, the, the reason that we're seeing so many overdose deaths higher than ever in our history is the extremely dangerous street drug fentanyl. 
fentanyl is being mixed into not only heroin and opioids, but it's being pressed into other pills. They're finding it in cocaine and methamphetamine. You're not expecting to get fentanyl when you go to your dealer and get, you know, your cocaine or your methamphetamine or, you know, Xanax or whatever. And people are overdosing on accident because of high levels of fentanyl that's being cut into other drugs. And I mean, that's something that that really, you know, for the first time, I think that our government really needs to step in and start doing a little bit more about intervention and allowing that trash to get in. We're not creating fentanyl here in the United States. Yeah, it's most of it's actually coming through the post office through China. That's another one of the myths. People think it's all coming from across the border from Mexico. It's not actually the case. There, it is coming across the border in Mexico. No, don't get me wrong, but the majority of it is coming from China. Right, and I mean, you know, we have to. I guess you're looking at drug addiction that would lead to drug death or overdose differently than just treating the signs of depression and things that are leading to suicide. But how do we try to intervene? I mean, you know, and I know that's a, that's a, a, a silly question, but I mean, you know, there are families out there right now that are listening to this and they realize that, you know, they got a loved one upstairs or downstairs in the basement who hasn't come up for a couple of days and they know that they're doing something because they seem to be asleep a lot. And I, I mean, is that idea of let's jump in and, you know, have a family intervention. Is that a good idea these days? Or yeah. What's the best way to, to, to at least start the conversation? If you are a family member of a loved one who may be suffering from an addiction or severe mental health disorder, I always advocate for having a conversation, even if it's uncomfortable. If you don't know where to start and you are just too scared to do it, there's professionals you can bring in. You can hire interventionists. You can have people come in and help you have those conversations. The same thing goes about suicide, Montel, and this is critical. When another one of those myths that we didn't hit on is that if you're, you know, exhibiting signs of suicidality, I as a parent or loved one get scared. If I ask you about it, you're going to become more suicidal. Nothing could be further from the truth. The research does not support that. In fact, the opposite is shown in the research that someone reaching out and showing that they care can actually reduce thoughts of suicide or risk of suicide death. And if I'm that person who's got, you know, moments of lucidity where I know, mm, you know, that did too much. I shouldn't have done that yesterday. What do I do? What do I do? Or I'm that person who's been giving away things and thinking, oh, man, I, I, you know, everybody would be better off if I wasn't here. But then I have that moment where I think, no, that's not right. I, I want to be here. How do I reach out to get help? Where do I go? Reach out to anyone who will listen, but if you have no one around you or you want to talk to a professional, you can always call 1-800-273-TALK. That's the National Suicide Prevention Line. Um, you can always call us at Be Well Network, 888-317-8395. We're here for you 24-7. The important point is reach out for help. Suicidality is not a chronic lifelong condition. It can be treated and you can move forward health in a healthy way. Same thing with substance use disorders. It doesn't have to be a chronic lifelong um, condition for you. T treatment does work. It can work. And with, with time and support, people can get over these illnesses and lead healthier lives. I've seen it so many times, Montel, as many horror stories as I could tell you. I could tell you just as many, if not more, success stories. People that I work with here in treatment are in recovery eight, 10 years themselves, some of the greatest people I've ever met. Treatment does work. Get the help you need. Reach out for support any way you can. 
And just a, you know, just a final thought from you in general for those who are sitting around and you know, like you know, we started this conversation off talking about the fact that you know, dude, I mean, the 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 images and signs that I am fed every day, the way the society is evolving, which force me into a corner to deal with my depression or my anxiety by myself, you know. Is there hope? Do you think there's some way for us to turn around? I mean, I, I, I say it this way only because it's like, you know, I'm out in industry. I, I work in television development things, and, you know, and I try to develop programming that's good programming or uplifting programming. But I just I turn on the television, man, and I turn on the streaming services. and I'm seeing some of the darkest shit. Excuse my mouth. I'm going to use the term shit. But I see some of the darkest shit I've seen in 30 years on TV, man. Like, yeah, I was watching a movie. I won't say who the actors were in it because uh, I don't want to, uh, I'm not, um, you know, um, taking a shot at them. But I watched this movie the other day about a husband and a wife. And the wife is is constantly cheating on this husband. And what the husband does is he he's basically a serial killer because he's killing each one of the wives you know, um, uh, dialences and, you know, I, I go through the whole movie and you think, well, at least this is going to end right because the cops are going to come in and take down this dude. No, it didn't end like that. It ended with the guy, with the wife accepting the fact that the husband was killing off her boyfriends. What? Like, who, who came up with this shit? I mean, because that's one of those things that, that, you know, for the wrong mind to see this, they may think they could pull this off. So I'm just thinking, I mean, that I was so angry when I've turned off this movie. I, I can't even explain it to you. I and my wife talked about it for like 20 minutes. That was the worst thing I have seen in probably 30 years. How can you applaud this person who is as sick as that is? But that's what Hollywood seems to be feeding us now. And, you know, when we, when we watch, we tune into what we're claiming to be reality shows you know, which is really scripted reality where, you know, I don't care if it's the housewives of, you know, of, of, of Piggly Wiggly. It doesn't matter. I mean, all of them are, you know, together joined by some of the lowest common denominators of humanity. You know, they spit on each other. They throw things at each other. They yell at each other. They talk about it. You know, it's like, are you, do you think that Hollywood or this country is going to finally say, you know what? Why don't we start applauding people who do some good things? You think there's going to be a change or you think we're still going to keep going down into the abyss? You, you know better than I do the Hollywood scene and how that goes. I mean, from my my perspective, it's whatever is making money is what's going to keep being purported. You know, I, I think about this a lot with my own kids. When I was my kids are seven and ten. When I was that age, I was on my bike with my friends, sometimes five, six miles away from my house. And yeah, Same here. and you you can relate. The thought of that with my kids now makes me crazy. Like, oh, I could never do that, right? right? But why is society more dangerous now than when we were kids, or is it the what's portrayed in all the social media and Hollywood and films and video games? Is it worse now? I don't know the answer to that. I do know that I I think the childhood that you and I had is probably lost forever. Um, but you know, I I get scared when my kids are down the street. <laughs> you know, and I, right. I don't know. What what has changed? I mean, like you, I, I can remember when I was growing up, and I mean, we we took up you know a, a five by five or five five by four foot board, nailed it to you know a 
telephone pole, put a basketball hoop on it and play basketball in the corner. I mean, that was considered illegal, but nobody came down and jumped on the backs of a bunch of kids playing basketball in the street corner and letting the cars go by and playing basketball. I mean, and we would do that, but, you know, the, the bus would pull up at that street corner, letting us off for school and people were taking off their dress shoes and playing basketball on their feet. I mean, with, with their socks or, in, or barefoot. And the same thing you said, I mean, I can remember, I don't know how many times, you know, I, the, the, the discussion on the bus coming home from school would be, Hey dude, let's meet up in 15 minutes and we're all going to go over to the quarry. And then, you know, there'd be 20 kids on bikes, riding bikes over to the quarry. Why? I don't know. Just to look at the water and ride back. But, but that's what we did. It would take like 45 minutes, almost dark. You had to go in to eat dinner because most people were going in and eating dinner with their family, eating together, sharing experience together, talking about their day together. But now most people come in and sit down at the dinner table and they got a phone in their hand. Yeah. Don't even have a conversation with their kids. It's, it scares me. It really does. You know, I find myself wishing that my kids could have a similar childhood that I did, but I also find myself say, you know, saying that this is, this is 2020, 22, you know, it's, it's a different generation now. And all I can do is to try to shield them from as much of the, you know, the screen time and the addiction piece and let them make their own decisions later in life. I'll tell you what, none of my kids are going to have any social media until they're 18 years old and out the door. That's a personal choice for me. Um, there you, but, go. you know, I wish, I, more and more, I wish more and more parents would make that same personal choice for their families also, because I think that, you know, it, it, and I, I, I've heard from some people saying, Montel, the, the cat's already out the bag or, you know, old blue is out the gate. Well, put old blue back in again. You know what I'm <laughs> Time. Well, Doc, I can't thank you enough for being a part of today's show. I know that it's been enlightening to a lot of people out there. Give out that number one more time for those who are are just in need and, and might want to have somebody they can talk to. Absolutely. The website is bewellrecovery.com and the 24-hour number is 888-317-8395. Please, please do reach out for us. We, to us. We can help you. Thank you so much, Dr. Bender. And of course, you're always welcome back here if you just want to kick it and talk about it. And I think this is something as much as people talk about the other things in the world, that we should be having discussions about this almost every single day. So anytime you want to come back, you're welcome, okay? I'm, I'm always available to you, Montel. Thanks for doing this. Yes, sir. No, thank you so much. And make sure you tune in to the next edition of Free Thinking with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Free Thinking with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback, so please send us your comments. Thank you.